0: A little less than two years ago, we got a dog. Everybody else in the family was very eager to get a dog, except for me. And I was the only one in the family who's ever had a dog before. I grew up with dogs. I One in particular was named Bear. He was a quiche hound mix. And I had raised him from a puppy. Until he died about thirteen years, I had this dog. I knew what it was like to have a dog, and I was the one who least wanted a dog. All the kids were excited, my wife was excited. We lived in a sixteen hundred square foot apartment we didn 't really have a, we didn 't have a fenced in yard we didn 't have much of a backyard. Um, we did have a decent yard, but not a fenced in yard and our house was, we had three kids. We we have three kids. And we had three kids in the 1600 square foot apartment. We were just kind of bursting at the seams and we were actually looking to move at the time anyway. And we had discussed the idea of getting a dog. And I had said, well, let's just wait till we move until we, we, we have a fenced in yard. And so we had kind of agreed. But we had started looking, right? Like window shopping at the mall, right? We're just looking. We would go to shelters and pounds and humane societies and we were just looking. We actually found a dog we liked and that that had been lost and picked up and turned into the shelter. And then I was on my way to pick that dog up and the owner showed up and they called me on the way. Everybody was very disappointed except me. I just was not really sure about getting a dog again. It's just to everybody else, it was like exciting and fun, and to me, it was just more responsibility, like another kid um but we kept looking eventually we found a dog six month old um, it, it's a he's a um jack Russell pointer mix, so we would go into the humane shelter that day, and like he was a younger dog, which is kind of nice, you know for kids, especially. To grow up with a, a near puppy he wasn 't quite a puppy, but six months old, pretty young, but he was the only dog that didn 't like go crazy barking when we went in and so we were looking for more of a therapy dog for our, for our autistic son and a dog that would be more quiet and a short haired dog that wouldn 't shed and so this dog fit all those things, so we decided ahead of time before we moved to get go ahead and get this dog. And um, I think I, you know, of all Of everybody in my family I'm the only one that had raised dogs But I had the worst time with this dog Uh, We decided the dog would be inside Of course the dog was not housebroken yet But it just really upset the whole balance of my home life Just having this dog introducing this new person into our family I really struggled and struggled Um, at the time the couch that we had in the living room was we'd had it since we'd almost as long as we'd been married almost 14 years it'd been through three kids, actually more kids because we fostered, no big deal so we let the dog on the couch early on the dog would sit with my wife and I in the evenings when we watched TV after the kids were in bed and um, we did eventually move And after we moved, we got a new couch. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Not just my new couch and the dog, but I want to talk to you about attachment. So, I'll come back to this story in just a minute. You're listening to the Construction Monk Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Randall Ori. And today I want to talk to you about disordered attachment. What is disordered attachment? So, let's get into it. So when we moved, we moved into a a bigger house. We moved to the next city over, Maryville, from Seymour. Um, And I was working, we saved up, and we we were, you know, one of the first things we wanted to do was just kind of... Put new stuff in our living room. We had uh, that we we were renting the house at the time, but we were on a lease to purchase. And we did eventually. We have purchased the house now. But so even though we were renting, we had permission to start to do some things to the house. To paint. Um, we took out the carpet in the living room and exposed the hardwood floors. So the living room was the first room we kind of started to work on. We changed all the um, light switches and outlets and face plates and just painted the ceiling the walls and so we wanted to also spruce up our living room furniture so we took a trip to ikea with the kids and we got some stuff we got some um got a couch chairs some art for the walls and brought it back home this couch in particular, I don't think we've ever spent as much on a couch as we spent on this couch. So we get this couch home. It's a brand new couch. A nice couch. Fairly nice. You know, it's all relative. But we get it home and guess what? The dog's been sitting on the couch. Our old couch. We've got this brand new couch and you know how it is with new things. Like, you want to keep them new. Nobody has drinks on the couch. Nobody's going to have food on the couch. Nobody's going to be jumping on the couch. And all of a sudden, this dog is sitting on the couch. And I had the worst time with this dog on this new couch. Now, our dog does not shed hardly. But he's a dog, you know? And it just really drove me crazy. When we first got the couch, I, I asked my wife. I was like, are we... And it was the new couch. Are we going to let the dog on the couch? And she was like, hmm, why not? You know, you can't like it's, we've had him for over a year and you can't now teach him not to be on the couch. It's not fair to him. And, you know, he pretty much sleeps on the couch. That was kind of a slow progression. We first had him crate trained until he was housebroken and, you know, until he learned not to be scratching at our doors while we were sleeping. But Eventually, you know, he he has his own bed as well where he can chill. But I would have preferred that his bed be where he sleeps and chills. But it became the couch over time. And then we get this new couch. And it was more than a little inconvenience or frustration for me. It was, it really drove me crazy. Like seeing that dog on the couch, that couch that was brand new, that we wanted to keep nice... Seeing that dog sitting there, I would walk by and look at him and just feel in my heart this like, this no, sh- you know, shouting from my heart, no, this, I can't, this isn't right. I don't want the dog on that couch. And I really wrestled with that oddly enough to me. I was like, why, why am I so bothered by this? And naturally I started praying. I'm like, this is really, really getting under my skin. And I prayed, like, why, why? what's my deal? And um, in a moment, in a kind of uh, a revealing moment, basically, God just showed me. He's like, you love that couch more than the dog. You value that couch more than the dog. But which is more important? That, my friends, is what disordered attachment is about it's about what you value your attachment to things or people or ideas or institutions like what is the order of your attachment god really just it was a very healing moment i just felt like god pointed out this thing in my heart and said you're valuing you're valuing things out of order you know you paid a lot for that couch yes but Who gave you the ability to purchase that couch, the ability to work? Like, I've given you everything you have, and you should value things like I value things. And I value life and relationships more than anything. And anything I've made, there's an order to how I value things, and I want you to value things in the same order. That is what disordered attachment and ordered attachment are about and God just showed me clearly that I was valuing a thing more than a, a created being my my dog right? and um, I don't know it really kind of did a lot of work in my heart like God, God was basically showing me like it wasn't the issue really she wasn't the dog and the couch it was how I valued things and the dog and the couch just revealed that Uh, It bothered me because I already had this order of attachment. Now, if you don't know, I didn't create this idea, of this term disordered attachment. If you don't know, there's a guy named Ignatius of Loyal. Um, 1500s, he lived in the 1500s. He was one of three guys who founded the Jesuit order. Um, It's a Catholic order of priests, a very mission-minded order, and he came up with some principles, some, um, some principles of living the Christian life, I guess you could say. I don't know. If, I think it was more based, or it was, it was more geared towards monks. He was a monk, a priest, and a monk. The Jesuits isn't, are an order, a monastic order. But that's pretty much all I know about Ignatius. That and he came up with this idea of disordered attachment. I've not really done a lot of reading, but When I heard this term, it just like really struck me and stuck with me. Disordered attachment. I've kind of formed my own ideas about what that means. I guess God's been teaching me, which I think is good. So I've not done a lot of reading about what Ignatius meant by that, but I think I have a good idea, and I think that I have my own ideas, and that's what I want to share with you today. It's really simply about how you value things in the world. All things, everything. You know, for me, I was valuing a couch more than the dog. And God used that situation simply to draw out what was already in my heart concerning how I valued things to show me that I was valuing things wrong. When we look at the world, and the dysfunction of the world, and the disparity in the world, I think we can trace a lot of it back to disordered attachment. And let me, let me just put it this way. Does it make any sense that some people can be billionaires and have so much wealth? One person, two people, a couple, can be billionaires and have more money than they could possibly ever know what to do with stinking filthy rich and then other people are on the street and can't even provide themselves a meal does that make any sense? does it make sense that that could possibly stem from a disordered attachment to the wrong things? I've, I've also had a lot of struggle throughout my life and how I approach homeless people uh, I've worked with homeless people some through a charity for a few years. But I I really went through a journey of how I approached homeless people. So first off, like I would, I, my heart would always go out to homeless people. My heart does go out. Whenever I see someone struggling, hurting, isolated, alone, an outcast, downtrodden, my heart goes out to them. Um, I want to reach out to them. I want to do something for them. I want to lift them up. At the same time, as I talked about in my last podcast, I, for most of my life, have been a very guarded person, very suspicious of others, always trying to protect myself. So I found myself in a lot of instances approaching homeless people with this like um, diametrically opposed desires, these two different desires, like really wanting, really caring and wanting to reach out and help and do something at least approach them treat them with respect at the same time i wanted to protect myself from people and homeless people can be kind of scary to approach and and if you ever observe someone who's homeless and you observe how other people interact with them it's really a lack of interaction right (laughs) If you just sit, just sit for 10 minutes and watch a homeless person and watch how everybody reacts to them. Basically, people don't react. They ignore them. They're invisible. These people are invisible to most people. Why? Because they have nothing and they need everything and most people don't want to give anything to them. And so to most people, a homeless person is like a black hole. They're just going to suck things from you. And if you don't want to deal with that or have any do anything for this person, then you're just going to ignore them. And I'm, this is not to criticize anyone for how they treat homeless people, but I am using this illustration to point out a disordered attachment to comfort and personal security over valuing a human being. And I'm pointing to myself because I would pretty much ignore homeless people. I would want to help them. At times I would... I remember one time my wife and I were walking in the evening, in downtown. Where were we? Downtown Huntington, West Virginia, where we used to live. And I saw a guy. A guy came up to us and asked for money. And um, no, no. I think I approached him and gave him ten dollars, and my wife was, oh, I, I. I I talked to my wife. I'm like, I want to give this guy $10. And she was like, no, don't. I don't want you to. And I was like, I got mad at her. I gave the guy $10. And then the rest of the evening, we kind of argued about how she didn't want me to do that. And I wanted to do it. And I was just trying to be kind. But after I gave him the $10, we watched him walk right over to a liquor store. (laughs) And and I was like, darn it. My wife was right. (laughs) I didn't really help that guy. But... You know what? I did treat him with respect and care. Maybe I didn't help him, but I did acknowledge that he was a person, and that he has needs, you know. But my approach towards homeless people has been conflicted at best throughout the years. And then when I worked at the thrift store for two years, we had a lot of people come in needing help. Uh, We took clothes to the homeless. We didn't have homeless people coming in. We weren't, for the most part, we weren't that accessible. We weren't that close to the homeless community. We would take items, clothes, food to the homeless. But we would have underprivileged or low-income people come in. Anybody could come in and get free clothes. That's what the charity was founded around. And so throughout those two years, I had dealt with a lot of people in need. And I learned to start to see them just to see them, and to treat them with respect. I learned that the first thing I could give to them wasn't some material possessions, some clothes. The first thing I could give them, and the best thing was my attention, my heart, my respect, to just to treat them like a person, not invisible. Um, and that, through that period, I really grew a lot in understanding how to approach other people, how to value other people, over my own comfort and so now I don't really have any qualms any qualms approaching people in general just treating people with respect, giving people the time of day as they say Um, I've learned a different order of attachment I've learned to value people above a lot of other things that I used to value safety, comfort convenience now I feel very comfortable I, I don't basically I don't have to do anything for, for anyone first of all so I can approach people simply from a humble standpoint like I'm not here to fix the world or resolve something for anyone I can simply approach people open heartedly and give nothing and just give my time and give my attention I think that's okay I would always enter into that situation like with a homeless person feeling like I had to do something and fix something and leave the situation better than it was when I you know, found that person or I just had all these expectations on myself. Um, now I don't have to do anything for them. I don't even know what to do before I at least talk with them. Now I know I value people much higher than a lot of other things and so my attachments in that regard have changed. And it's helped me treat people better, treat homeless people better. It doesn't mean I go up to every homeless person. It just means that I'm not afraid to. I'm not afraid to approach anyone. Uh, that's what disordered attachment is about. When we're attached to things above people Or attached to something that has lesser value. When we're giving something with lesser value, greater value than something that has greater value, but we give it lesser. That's what disordered attachment is about. I think our world is full of disordered attachment, not just to possessions. I think it's easy to talk about possessions because that's probably the most obvious when it comes to disordered attachment. My dog story is a good one. Homeless people is another one. I'm not telling you you need to go out and start trying to engage with homeless people, but I am telling you that you should value people above things. That's the that's a big one. That's like the big, most obvious first step. Like, value people above things. That doesn't mean you should put yourself in harm's way. You know? Or your kids. You don't have to approach homeless people. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying you can see them. That's it. You don't have to engage with them, but see them. They're people. They're people on the street. They're people in a dire situation. You can see them. You don't have to ignore them. Give them a cup of coffee. It's not that hard. Just treat them like a person. Treat them like they were your family member. You know, my brother Dave was... uh, he, He... Followed the Grateful Dead one summer, he ended up stranded in Oregon. Uh, his car broke down, and he lived on the streets for probably about six months. Fortunately, he had a family that cared about him, and we, you know, we had offered to pay his way home when he wanted. Well, when it started to get cold, then he really wanted to. But that whole time, I knew my brother was living homeless on the on the streets of. Portland, I said the streets of Oregon, <laughs> Portland to be specific. Um, man, that tore me up. Just knowing my brother was on the street, you know. I mean, I I didn't really know what his situation was like. He did have a car that was kind of his home, but I just imagined, you know. I, you see homeless people all the time, and my brother was a homeless person. Like, what if you saw every person? Every homeless person has your brother, your sister, your mother. You know? Then you humanize them. Then you see them. They're someone's brother, someone's sister, someone's mother. And look, I've worked with homeless people, I know. I know all the reasons. Like, I know all the explanations. I know sometimes they're there by choice. Not necessarily directly by choice, but like the choices they've made have led them there. When my wife and I lived in West Virginia, we lived um, close to the river, the Ohio, the Ohio River and the Guyandot River, actually, where they, where they join, where the Guyandot empties into the Ohio. There was a guy who lived down around there under the bridge. We called him Homeless Rick. And I started a friendship with Homeless Rick. I would just check in on him from time to time. I let him know if he ever needed to use the bathroom, wanted to take a warm shower. He could come into our house or knock on the door. Um, Sometimes his son would come down to visit him and would need a ride back to his house. And so Rick would come up and ask me to take his son home. His son was in his late 20s. Um, Anyway, uh, I developed a relationship with him, with homeless Rick. And I got to know him. I just treated him like a person. And so that's, a, that's one way you can start to evaluate like your own attachments to things and people, how you treat people. But it's not just materially based, right? It's not just like how you value the things you own over people. But it's also your attachment to institutions. I think that's more subtle and maybe even more important. Like, do you value certain groups over others is your attachment to your group too great and your attachment to other groups too small maybe your attachment to white middle class suburbia is too great and you would never step foot in an inner city project maybe that's where your attachment is disordered maybe it's your church group Or your religious group above those outside of it. I've developed a good friendship with an atheist friend. I started the last podcast talking about that. And we talked for a while. Um, After we had talked for a while and started to get to know each other. One of the first things he kind of told me was... He was like, man, I really appreciate just how you talk to me and treat me. He's like, most Christians treat me horribly. Horribly, because I'm an atheist. They really don't treat me well at all. He's like, I really appreciate that you just treat me like a person. The religion of a God of love that preaches God is love cannot be so loving sometimes. Why? That's disordered attachment. That's, in a, that's that shows that your attachment. A a group's attachment to their beliefs and their own social group is too high and their attachment to people outside of it is too low. I could go on a long tangent about how Christians, I've seen Christians treating people outside their group, even other Christian groups. (sighs) Nothing has created greater disparity and oppression in the world than religion and politics. It's for these that we bomb people and kill people and persecute people. You don't have to read very far into history at any time and point to see people treating people very horribly over political differences and religious differences. Some of the founders of our own country, the first pilgrims, The Puritans came to this country because they were being persecuted by the Anglican Church. Severely persecuted because of their beliefs. They fled to this country for religious freedom. And within the same generation of people, they were persecuting the Quakers because they believed in a different brand of Christianity than them. And by persecuting, I mean cutting off ears, cutting out tongues, even killing These were people that fled religious persecution for for religious freedom. And they turn around and start persecuting another group of Christians. Like, almost immediately, other Christians that were coming to the Americas for the same thing they were. Crazy. That's disordered attachment. Blinding us to how we value things that, over others... Out of order And I I think You know Religion is easy To poke a stick at (laughs) And to You know And I'm a Christian So I'm criticizing myself My own religion It's not Not meaning to be um, Mean spirited In my criticism Just honest But politics I don't know if there's Anything I see More divisiveness over Than politics Today Social media is rampant with this divisiveness. It's a disordered attachment. If you value your political party over other people who are outside of it or opposed to it, that's a disordered attachment. I think politics is probably one of the most glaring examples of disordered attachment. Homosexuality is another. Um race is another there was a black lives movement protest recently that a guy drove a car into the protesters because he hated their movement so much like he he, his intent was to kill people because he disagreed with their views to that extent that is disordered attachment to the extreme if you're willing to kill somebody because they believe something different then your attachment to your beliefs is way out of whack with your attachment to people your value of people like if your beliefs lead you to hurt people then you value your beliefs way too much and people not enough does that make sense disordered attachment is about how we value things the order in which we value things though the the value we place on things above other things or people above other people <sighs> I, mean, I could go on and on giving examples, but the heart of the matter is your heart. <laughs> like, where is your heart? What's in your heart? And I, I, look, I, I believe hate is a human dysfunction. It's an aberration. It's an anomaly. It's not how we're meant to be. But hate is basically the revealer of disordered attachment, of valuing things in correctly, unproportionate value of things over people or, or systems or beliefs over people. And it's revealed in how we treat people, people that are different from us, people that view things differently, valuing, tr- quote, our truths or truths over people, uh, contemplation, the reason I'm a construction monk and practice contemplation contemplation is basically just the practice of peering into our own hearts that's what it's that's what it does it helps us it calls us to sit be quiet and look that's what god was doing in my heart you know and really whenever there's dissidence like contemplation point, points us to suffering and dissidence i talked about in the last last podcast how Contemplation really talks about suffering a lot and one of the reasons is that it really says when you look at your suffering it's, it's not just suffering for nothing it's pointing you to things our suffering points us to the dysfunction to the disordered attachment in our hearts and minds when I struggled with my dog sitting on the couch I could have simply just read that from the surface well, you know, I work hard I like my things to be nice there's nothing wrong with like you know that's what my wife and I say that a lot like there's nothing wrong with keeping your things nice there is something wrong with treating someone not very nice over keeping something nice or for the sake of keeping your nice things nice does that make sense contemplation seeks to point us to our hearts to listen where there's suffering where there's dissidence where there's anger where there's frustration There is something valued in the wrong order, in the wrong way. We're valuing something incorrectly. There's something wrong in our hearts and minds. Contemplation says, don't feed that, first of all. Secondly, listen. What's going on there? Listen. Take a listen. What's going on in your heart when you're angry, when you're frustrated, when you want to punch someone in the face? (laughs) Right? Pay attention. That's what contemplation calls us to. It says, pay attention. Stop. Listen, look at those things. Fear, anxiety, it's all a dysfunction. It all stems from disordered attachment. I believe a lot of it anyway, maybe not all of it. But how we value things. Maybe it's it's really contemplation says, look at those things. Listen when there's dissidence in your life, when there's tension. Listen. What is it pointing you to? There's something in your heart that's not right. Suffering points us to the things in our hearts that are not right. Contemplation calls us to sit, to sit with our pain and our suffering, to listen. Don't just throw it in the dark and try to separate yourself from it. It's there for a reason. It's like a warning light on the dashboard of your car. It's calling your attention to something that isn't right. And a lot of times it has to do with what we value and valuing things with disordered attachment with, in a disproportionate way above other things. Like the goal is to value things, to give things their proper value. And here's one of the big things when it comes to how we value things we can give things value. And, and in our perspective, or from our perspective and our relative sense of things, we do. We choose what how we choose how to value things. But here's the other side of that: there is a reality to the value of things. There is an intrinsic value that things have, things and people, the earth. Um, and so, what we find with disordered attachment is that. Our value is not line, our, our value of things, the value we've determined to give to things and people, does not line up with the true value of those things and people sometimes. That's what disordered attachment is pointing to. Of course, at the bottom of all of that is the idea that things have an intrinsic value, which means that things have been given value by someone other than ourselves. You may or may not believe in God. But let me tell you, if there is no such thing as this divine being who has predetermined the value of things, then we pretty much can just give things the value that we want, and it doesn't matter. It's all relative. I think we can argue for a general consensus of value, and that's fine. That's what we would call human culture and human-born morality and values, cultural values. But if there's real nothing bigger behind that than our cultural values, then I can, you know, whatever even my culture says, I can say, well, I don't value that. It's all relative, right? And we can, how can we call out historically events like the Jewish Holocaust? The Germans simply didn't value the Jews culturally the same as other, as, as their own German um, people, That was just the value they determined. It's all relative, right? It's relative. How can we say things truly have greater value than other things if there's not some universal form, universal value system, right? I mean, and if the best we have is human value, human-born value, fine. But it's still relative. When it comes down to the finer details, I can value my couch over my dog, they're both my possession, right? Slavery, the treatment of women. Women were considered possessions. Slaves were considered possessions. That was how they value things at the time. How can I look back and say, that's wrong, that was wrong, and we need to write that? Unless there is some kind of standard of value already pre-existing in the world <clears throat> that I need to get in line with, and that we can say, you know, if... We determine our own values and how people valued women and slaves, like cattle. That was just how they valued them. We can't judge that. Yet we do. We do. Because we do believe there is a universal system of valuing things. And then, if that's true, then we don't get to decide the value of things. It's not up to us to choose to determine for ourselves. It's up to us to try and align ourselves with the true value of things. And that's what disordered attachment speaks to. Whether or not we're valuing things or giving things the value they actually have or whether we're distorting that value and therefore distorting ourselves in the process and bringing hate into our hearts and minds. Hate, frustration, anxiety, fear, disordered attachment speaks to all of this this whole picture of how we value things and basically it says value passing things with a passing value and value eternal things with eternal value you know don't value something more than what it's worth money possessions, relationships political parties religion how does that all measure up in your system of value? Well, I would say ultimately any values, any order that leads us to treat any person less than human and any life less than worthy of taking space up in the world is out of order. Um I want to in the future do a podcast on this topic, but I want to introduce it now. When it comes to value, this is I think this is just how I would see value, I would, how I would assign value, um, or how I would try and seek to understand the value of things as they already are as given by God. So if you don't know, um, in the Christian scriptures, there is this thing called the Trinity made up of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is probably one of the most ambitious Ambiguous, kind of at least talked about parts of the trinity i like to call him the third wheel of the trinity because like jesus is cool like we know a lot about jesus from the new testament we know a lot about god the father from the old testament but the holy spirit is kind of like this anomaly and even by the nature of his her name. It's like the spirit is like, even scripture says the spirit is like the wind. You don't know from where the wind comes or where it's going, right? The spirit is like ethereal and kind of intangible. I was uh, listening to a sermon from one of my friends who, uh, he's a pastor out in Indiana. Um, and he was talking about the, the Holy Spirit and he was reminding me that in the Old and New Testament, in the Hebrew and the Greek, every time you see the word spirit. It's literally translated as breath. Holy breath. Uh, the New Testament, the Greek is pneuma. Uh, and I don't remember the Hebrew word for that, for breath. But it's that's the way it's always translated. So instead of Holy Spirit, we could say holy breath. And I was thinking about this just recently. I was really pondering that that idea of the holy breath. In Genesis... It says that God breathed into man, to Adam and Eve, breathed life into them. He formed them out of the dirt, right? We're talking about value here, so stay with me. Thinking about value, like dirt. God just took some dirt, formed it into a person. They were just a pile of dirt. And then he breathed into them and they became alive. The breath of God breathed into humans So I would say maybe the most simple and ultimate value of things is the holy breath. Did God give something life? And if God gave something life, then it has value. It has intrinsic value. It has the right to breathe. It has the right to be. Plants breathe. Grass. Foxes. Birds. Spiders snakes how you value things should be how god values things if god chooses to give something life it has value god is and and it's not just a one-time action i don't believe i don't believe scripture says the same like deism is this idea that god just created the world wound it up like a clock and left and it's like this organic mechanized world right that's what deism says, but I don't believe that. In fact, scripture says that in God we move and breathe and have our being and God holds all things together in him and herself. Like in God we move and breathe and have our being, which means God sustains life in all things all the time every second. Like God is constantly breathing life into all things. If there if something's alive, God is the life in that thing. And so how we value anything is how we value God. How do you value God in all things? How should you? You should value all things as you value God. That's what I'm saying. That's what the holy breath is about. The holy breath says, if it's alive, if it's here, it deserves to be here because God has put it here. And how you treat it? You should take care in how you treat things, anything and everything. You should consider what you're doing. You should never be flippant in how you treat anything and anyone, from a plant to a person, from a bug in your house to the air you breathe, the planet you stand on. We should value things as if they were God. That doesn't mean we don't value some things over others. But most of the time we're not we don't have to even make that choice, right? Like I think the best paradigm for value would be how how to try and see how everything belongs, how everything has a place, and I shouldn't strive in occupying my space to take the space of something else to infringe upon the space of something else. What that means is what I would hope what i would like that to mean is that I could be a Republican and you could be a Democrat and that's okay or I can be a liberal and you can be a conservative and that's okay I can still value you the same as myself what that means is if there's a bug in my house I try to catch it and put it outside if I can because it deserves to be here it doesn't know it's in my house That's a lot more along the lines of Jainism. If you know anything about Jainism, they they won't kill anything. If there's a wasp in my house, I do kill it. (laughs) Because I don't want my kids to get hurt. I think that that is a necessary action. It's not what I desire. I don't kill that wasp because I want to or like to. I value the wasp. The wasp has a purpose. I don't want the wasp in my house to sting my kids, though. There's a purpose to why I kill the wasp it's not self-centered just because I feel like it because I don't like it being there but because I know it could hurt my kids because I value my kids how we value things matters how we treat things matters we should never take away the life of anything without reason and it should never be viewed as even a necessary evil I think it's an unnecessary evil. Sometimes the world just requires we do things that aren't good, but we should at least recognize that they're not good, right? I know maybe the wasp illustration is silly to you, but to me, it's not, because I, what right do I have to tell anything it doesn't have the right to be here? I believe that with my whole heart. We cannot injure anything in the world without injuring ourselves somehow. I believe that. How we treat anything is how we treat everything, as if it were God, because it is, because God is in it. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not talking about pantheism. Everything is God, which is what I said, but not what I meant. I'm talking about panentheism, which is God in all things. I'm not saying we worship all things as God, but I'm saying we treat all things as if they had the life of God in them, the presence of God in them, all things as if they are holy, holy and sacred. Disordered attachment is our inability to see the value of things separate from the value we give them. It's also coming to try and work out where we are not valuing things in the proper way. There's a lot of work we have to do in our culture, in our world. When it comes to how we value things, when it comes to disordered attachment... Valuing our own comfort over other people's basic needs. I know those are some, these are some big concepts, you know. I'm not telling you you need to sell your house and go live on the street, give your possessions to the poor. <laughs> That's what Jesus said to the rich man. That guy had some disordered attachment issues. Jesus was addressing them. You know, I don't think that the Bible says it's wrong to take care of yourself and your family, to have a house, to have, you know, your needs met and shelter. And I don't think that's what Jesus was saying in the story of the rich man. What he was saying, the rich man came to him and said, you know, what do I, what do I need to do to be right with God? And Jesus said, well, there's the law. How are you with that? And he's like, really good, actually. Jesus said and, and then Jesus didn't automatically say hey then uh, you think you're so great go live homeless on the street get all rid of he didn't say that he said the, the rich man pressed further and said well what more must I do if I you know if I really really want if I want to be really really good with God what else could I do and he's like oh you really want to be good with God that's your goal like that's your priority that's what you value Jesus knew his heart He's like, okay, here's what you could do if you really want to go to that next level with God. Give up everything you own. In the the story, it says the rich man hung his head and he went away sad because he had a lot of money and he couldn't give it up. Jesus was testing him. He was really asking, he was really saying, do you value your things more than God? Could you give up everything for God? Do you value God more than the things you own than your own comfort and possessions and money and wealth and prominence and position and power and religion and political party and truth do you value God more than those things and here's let me and let me maybe wrap up with this idea like how does God value things that's i think that's the question that's the question for all of us to seek out and to lean into and to figure out for ourselves how does God value things does God value His and Her own comfort above us? I think the greatest example is Jesus. I'm going. I'm going. I'm going to go with Jesus. That's the answer to everything, right? Jesus. But look, what does Scripture say? What What is the story? What's the gospel story about? Jesus, as God, God the Son, was good. He was with the Father. He lived in perfect bliss, right? And gave all of that up to come down, to, to become Emmanuel, God with us, to enter our mess, our situation, to love us, to show us a better way. The first step of that better way was Jesus giving up everything that he had, all the comfort and goodness of where he was at. Perfection. Jesus gave up perfection to come down. Why? To come here to show us, to teach us, to love us, to set a better example of how we should live as humans. Why? Because he valued us more than anything else. He valued people the most, more than his position, even more than his truth. One of the things that Jesus confronted the the Pharisees, Sadducees and religious leaders of his day about was that they valued their truth and their religious system more than people. When his disciples were picking heads of grain on the Sabbath and the Pharisees accosted them and said to Jesus, you got to stop these guys. They're breaking the law. And Jesus is like, no, that I didn't create humans for the law, but the law for humans. Like it's supposed all the good ideas of God are, are to benefit people. People aren't meant to benefit the law. The law isn't the thing that, va- that we value more than people. It's people we value more than the law. And that's how Jesus lived. He came to try and set his own religion straight about how God values things. The religious leaders of his day valued their religion and their political, religious political power and position and their own comfort over people. And Jesus was constantly confronting his own religion because the leaders of his religion valued That religion and their own personal prominence and power and wealth and comfort over people. And they used God to affirm that value system when it was actually in direct opposition to God's values. Jesus made a very stark statement about all of that. He said, You are like your father, the devil. And when you find a convert, you make them twice the son of hell as you. (laughs) He was was pretty clear about how they valued things and how it was not godly. It was the opposite. That's what he's saying. He's not, you know, I don't know. I don't know if he was being literal there necessarily, but he was saying, you are exactly the opposite of how God is in the world and how God values things. You have such a disordered attachment that you've turned the whole religion This whole religion around and upside down. You've put God and people on the bottom and you put yourselves at the top. It's just like you were worshiping Satan instead of God. That's exactly what you're doing. That's what he's saying. Why? Because God values people above all. Is your religion leading you to hate any person? To isolate from? To separate from? To cast out? To downcast? Downtrodden? Oppress any person? Your religion is upside down. Do your politics lead you to value any person? Less than your political truth and your political party? Does it it lead you to treat people horribly? To call them names? To disparage them? To belittle them? Then your value of your political party is upside down. It's too high. If it's above the value of people. That's what Jesus' life, ministry was about. His very coming to the earth spoke this truth. I value people more than my own comfort and position and power and prominence. My own good. I'm going to put my good second and myself second to people. Even myself. I care more about you and this earth, and this world, than just my good position and place in heaven. So if you want to know how God values people, or how God values things and people and all this, I think Jesus is a pretty good example. Jesus was a homeless person, you know. Didn't have any money. He came for one purpose, to teach us how to love each other. He said, You'll know, the people will know that you're my followers, that you're like me, and how you love people. I don't think it stops there, how you love things, animals. My wife and I watch a show called um, The Amazing Dr. Pohl, or The Incredible Dr. Pohl, sorry. (laughs) It's amazing too. And. He's a vet veterinarian. I think he's in Michigan, perhaps. Um, But he's a vet. He's a uh, team of vets, and they help animals, right? They uh, help everything. I love, if you just watch that show and you see how he and his team of vets value animals. I think they value animals. It's like, God, oh my gosh, I just saw a a hummingbird racing, hovering and then racing through the woods. (laughs) I am in a little bit of a clearing. But, like, I cry in that show sometimes just watching when people have to put their animals down, how much people love their animals. Some people would laugh at that, you know. Like, it's just a stupid dog, right? (laughs) Some people would say that, but I don't say that, and I don't believe that. And the vets will cry, too. They're visibly upset when they have to put down someone's animal. Dr. Pohl, he's like, I don't care what it is. It's, if it's an animal, I'll help it. If something's wrong, I'll will try and fix it. I'll do it. You know, there's just an open-heartedness. Like there's a value for life that I see in this show, that I think is good and I think is godly. That's how God is. God values all life. God made it, and God loves it. And if we want to be like God, like that rich young ruler said, we need to value things like God does. We need to look at ourselves, look at our hearts. Whenever you're frustrated and angry, whenever you're driving down the road and someone gets in front of you and you're pissed off, you're valuing something disproportionately there. That's disordered attachment. It's up to each of us to work on our hearts, so invite God into the process. If you don't believe in God, to invite your higher power, (laughs) whatever you might call it, like to do the work. To start to move out of the space and place where we're putting people down and we're disparaging people and belittling people over things that don't have as much value as people and animals and things and the planet. All right. I hope that that is enlightening for you. I hope that is convicting and challenging as well. I I hope it leads you to look at yourself. Take some time. Consider How you value things. Where are there disordered attachments in your life? It's not if. It's not a question of if. I've not worked it all out. Have you? Are you perfect? Have you got it all together? No. Nobody does. Spend some time. Spend some time in contemplation. The word contemplation literally means to spend a long time looking at something. That's what it's about. Spend some time, maybe a long time, looking into your heart, considering Why certain kinds of people frustrate you? Why you can't stand people from that opposite political party or people outside of your social group or people that don't agree with your religious views? Anywhere there's hate, that's a human dysfunction. Everything has the holy breath, is of the holy breath, and in the holy breath, and is holy. Treat everything as you would treat God. And if you don't believe in God, treat everything how you would treat yourself. And if you don't love yourself, you've got a lot of work to do. (laughs) Either way, take some time. Consider the disordered attachments you have in your life. Ah, Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. I love all of you. I love all of you. I got a little tongue-tied there. If you want to catch more content, go to www.moderncontemplative.com more more podcasts, blogs, if you like to read. Uh, if you want to catch up with me, send me a note or an email. You can do that there too. Appreciate it, guys. Love you. Bye.